willing and able to give themselves completely to God's service. And so we're looking this morning at Abel. Abel in the book of Genesis chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, you can take them and turn there. Before we, uh, before we look at that passage of Scripture, however, um, I want to just remind you, first of all, that the word teenager did not exist until the 20th century. Uh, that was a term that was never used. Apparently, the first documented use of the word occurred in an issue of the Reader's Digest in 1941. David Barnhart and Alan Metcalf, in the book America in So Many Words, tell us that before the 20th century, we had thought of people in just two stages, children and adults. There were uh, no, uh, oh, there were teenagers, <laughs> but we didn't recognize a category. You were either an adult or you were a child. And while childhood might have its tender moments, the goal of the child was to grow up as quickly as possible so that he or she could become an adult. Now, I want us to look this, this summer at, at men and women in the Bible who, who God used powerfully and mightily in spite of their age. Now, before I go any further, let me just say this. Those of you who are not teenagers anymore, uh, I still want you to come to church this summer. <laughs> I don't want you to stay home. In fact, I think maybe what will happen is, uh, and I hope this happens, is that something within you will rise up and your, your, your hidden or your inner teenager will rise to the surface. And you will remember the dreams that you had when you were a kid. How many had dreams when they were young? Anybody have dreams? You, how many still have dreams? How many are having nightmares? <laughs> how many don't know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Do you remember the days when you were idealistic and you had a, a clear sense of right and wrong? And you knew what you wanted to be and what it was that you wanted to do. How is it that somehow we lose that? You've heard me say this before. Ernie and Mary Crager, who are now too, too old to get around, literally, uh, they're confined to their, to their uh, apartment, but yet they are two of the youngest people I know. In their 90s, they are pursuing their dream, and their dream was to, to bring the gospel to the whole world. And so the only way that they could think of bringing the gospel to the whole world was by establishing a website. And now Mary Craker is up at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning talking to people around the world and telling them about Jesus. And I tell them, Ernie, Mary, you are two of the youngest people I know. I don't know anybody as young as you are. So I'm going to tell you this morning, don't shut me down when I talk about the young and the reckless. Understand, rather, that I'm talking about really a state of mind where you recognize your calling to be all that God wants you to be. I'd like to introduce you to two young men. Can we show that slide? This is uh, Alex and Brett Harris. These are two young men who have very high ideals. They wrote a book called Do Hard Things. In fact, when I was uh, away at a pastor's conference, I found a copy of the book, and I, I brought it home for Taryn, working with young people. But the thing that, uh, that moved me is that it, it was speaking to me. Now, I know you're saying, Pastor, you're an old man now <laughs> at 46. Uh, you're not a teenager anymore. But I'm going to tell you, the message, the call in that book so moved me that I had to get a copy for Taryn. And so uh, we've been talking about it a little bit these days. But here are two young teenagers who say, 
we need to start a revolution. No, I don't have a speech impediment. <laughs> you heard me right. A revolution. Teenagers are thought of as being uh, irresponsible and, uh, and, and problematic and rebels. And these young men are saying what we need is a revolution. We need to change the way that we live our lives. And so we're gonna, we are going to rebel against what society says that we must be. Very moving. They're gonna, they're choosing to do what best honors God. And in this book, it's a call to other young people to do the same thing. And, and this morning, if you are young at heart, then this message is for you. If you're old, then go to sleep. <laughs> and I'll wake you up when we're done. But for those of you who are young at heart, then this is for you this morning. Now let's just get back to these two young fellows. These two young fellows have a, a great love for God. Their desire is to honor God in all that they do. And um, so they wrote this book, Do Hard Things. Just listen to this. Brett and Alex live out what they are calling others to do. At 16 years of age, they served as the youngest Supreme Court interns on record in the state of Alabama. At age 17, they launched www.revolution.com. You can, you can look that up later. It's a fascinating website. But that's only for the young. If you're old today, then you'll just disregard that. But if you're young at heart, you'll look that up and get challenged. It is now one of the most trafficked Christian teen websites on the Internet. At 18 years of age, they began touring the country, talking to teens. And at 19, they became publishers, or they published, became published authors when they took their book, Do Hard Things, and it hit the stores. I'm going to tell you that you can find this book at Chapters, at McNally Robinson. It's not just in Christian bookstores. It's literally in all the bookstores. These young men were, at, were, were interviewed by, um, by some of the great interviewers on television in the USA. Because their message is so unusual. It's so different. It's, they're not typical teenagers. How many would agree that this don't, these don't sound like typical teenagers? Here they are with their, with their revolution. Saying, God, here we are, use us. And this is what they write in their book. When child labor laws, which were rightly created to restrict and protect the physical well-being of children, and the mandatory education was extended through high school, an unintended byproduct was the creation of a new subcategory called the teenager. Since then, our expectations for adolescents have plummeted while their disposable income has soared. And while Madison Avenue figures out ways to harness teenage buying power, the teen years have come to be seen as a vacation from responsibility, say Alex and Brett. A vacation from responsibility. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a trend now in our society, and it's not just teenagers who are taking a vacation from responsibility. It be, has become the new standard of our society today. And folks, I'm sorry to tell you this, but it has even infiltrated the church. We don't want to take responsibility. We would rather let somebody else do it. We'd rather let somebody else take the responsibility. We just want to show up and be ministered to. We just want to show up and be taken care of. We just want to show up and have others look after us. But folks, I want you to know that that flies in the face of everything we learn in the Scriptures. 
Alex and Brett go on to say, society doesn't expect much from our young people during their teen years except trouble. How many would agree with that? And it certainly doesn't expect competence, maturity, or productivity. In fact, we don't expect that from anybody nowadays. It's, it's a sad state that we find ourselves in. They conclude by saying this, perhaps underlying all of these other issues are low expectations that society has set for teenagers. We live in a society where a teen who makes his bed has done an act of valor. <laughs> Maybe that's the way it is in your house. The kids make their bed, and man, you just can't believe how wonderful and mature they are. You're bragging to everybody about how your kids make the bed. We have an older generation here that remember in their early years the day that you started driving a tractor when you were nine years old, when you were out there throwing bales, when you were out there doing the work of an, adu- of an adult. And you maybe find it difficult to relate to the teenagers of our society, of our day and age. Well, I'm going to take you back to the Scripture. And I'm going to share with you this morning the first in our list of reckless young people. And I say reckless, I mean reckless for God. Willing to lose it all, to sacrifice it all for God. Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 to 8. And I'll just read you the passage here. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Adam, did you skip a a slide there? Can you go back one? There we go. Now we'll read the first part of that passage, which says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now let's read the next one. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We don't know a lot about Abel. There's not a lot said. In fact, what we do know about him is, is uh, more by inference. We, we look at Cain's life and his actions and we determine and we find out more about Abel. But the thing we do discover about Abel is that, listen to this, he's the very first person in the Bible who wanted to please God more than he wanted to please himself. He was the first of the young and the reckless. Let me say that again. He was the first one who wanted to please God more than he wanted to please himself. Folks, you understand that in North America, the way that Madison Avenue gets you to purchase their wares is by saying it's all about you. But we read here that it's not about you. Abel was the second born. Cain was the firstborn, truly uh, loved by his parents. The first, how many of the firstborn kids are always the most loved in the family? Everybody know that? 
And the, the youngest ones in the family, they're babied. And the middle kids are nobodies, right? How many middle kids do we have here? And would you agree with that? I'm a middle kid. We're nobody, aren't we? We're just nothing. <laughs> so here's, here's poor Abel. He's really a nobody. But Cain is the apple of his parents' eye. And um, as the eldest of the family, Cain was the one that was going to receive uh, the family blessing. Uh, as, as the eldest in the family, he was the, the, the first, first fruit of his mother's womb, and he was just wonderful. And then there was Abel. Cain was the farmer. He tilled the soil. Abel kept the flocks. And when it came time to worship God, the Scripture tells us that Abel worshipped God according to the manner prescribed by God. In fact, when Abel worshipped God, it pleased God because it says that Abel gave of the, the fat. The very best. And Cain gave second best. God blessed Abel. God blessed Abel so much, in fact, that Cain began to recognize this guy's being favored. How is it? I'm the oldest in the family and I'm not getting the blessing. And so now Cain is very angry at his brother. And you know the story goes. Cain becomes so angry at his brother that he actually kills him. Now, you know that Abel would have known what a bad temper his brother has. How many know by the time you're a teenager, your brother, your sister's got a bad temper or not? You know that. I mean, you should, I had a, I've got, I've got two brothers and a sister. So the four of us, with my mom and dad went, left the house for any length of time, man, we had a war breakout. Somebody was about to kill somebody. I'll never forget the time my sister took the butcher knife and whipped it at my brother as he was running up the stairs. And thankfully our staircase had the, you know, the, the, uh, what do you call those? The spindles and the, the knife went right into the spindle and uh, just missed my brother's leg by just, uh, like, I'm talking like an inch. And uh, that was my household. <laughs> we had wars break out. We had, we, we, my brother's sister had bad tempers. I was the only good kid in the house. <laughs> what? There is, uh, there is Abel. He knew his brother was mad at him. And he knew his brother was really jealous of him. But look at this. Look what we find about Abel. He's willing to stand alone. He doesn't care what his mother or his father or his brothers say or think about him. He's going to stand alone and he's going to please and honor God. Let me ask you the question today. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be young at heart and reckless for God? Are you willing to say, God, here am I. I'm going to stand for you. I don't care what anybody says or thinks. I don't care if my life is in danger. And his life was in danger, and you know he lost his life. So I want to talk to you this morning about what it means to stand alone for God. What it means to stand up and say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to be counted for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to put you first, God. Here's what you've got to do. First of all, you've got to do the hard thing. That's what that book is about, by the way. Chuck Colson says, commenting on the book, he read it and he thought it was fantastic. He says this, one of the reasons why I think the book Do Hard Things by the Harris Boys is so important is because it is challenging teenagers to rebel against low expectations. The low expectations uh, placed on them. 
not the least of which are low spiritual expectations. And the voices that are speaking, asking teens to rise to meet this challenge are voices from their own generation. And he says, that thrills me. But we adults should also be setting high standards. When I was a youth pastor, I quickly discovered something about young people. And that is that they are very idealistic. And the best way to capture the hearts of young people is to appeal to that idealism. I'm telling you, those are some of my, you've heard me talk about this, those are some of my most precious years and precious memories. Because these kids were prepared and willing to do anything for Jesus, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard. When I told the kids, we need to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning for a prayer meeting, the kids said, okay, we'll be there. And I thought, oh yeah, we'll see about that. I'm telling you, I had 25 kids waiting for me at 6 o'clock in the morning in the middle of winter when it's 40 below. They were waiting for me to get there to open the doors. They were ready to do business with God. And I say, wow, that's exciting. They're willing to do the hard thing. When I told the kids, kids, you've got to watch, monitor what you, what you watch on TV. Because if you are not careful about what goes into your heart, it's going to destroy your walk with God. I got a call one day from a from an angry parent saying, what are you teaching my kids? I said, well, I'm just teaching them to follow Jesus with their whole heart. And this is a, this is one of the pillars of the church. How many know you, you, you can't tamper with the pillars of the church? What are you doing to my kid? And I said, well, I just taught the, I taught the kids that they got to be careful about what goes into their heart. Otherwise, it will destroy their spirituality. Would anybody disagree with me on that? You know that, don't you? But you see, this kid's willing to do the hard thing. He gave up TV altogether. The parents thought he was going out of his mind. What would you do if your kids stopped watching TV? What would you do if your kids gave up their video games that were about violence, killing, and murder, and bloodshed? It'd be pretty freaky, wouldn't it? You'd think your kids had lost their minds. And that's what happened. These parents were actually angry at me because their son was willing to do the hard thing. And that those parents, I'm sorry to say, pestered their kid constantly so that he would become status quo. And I'm sorry to tell you that today that kid's not serving God because a mother and father would rather have him be normal than do the hard thing. Now, some of us here today are in that category. We would rather not do the hard thing. We don't want to stand out and be different. We want to be like everybody else. We want to do what everybody else is doing. We want to have what everybody else has. Abel knew his brother was going to be angry if he continued to worship God in the manner in which he was worshiping God. He knew, Abel knew, that if he continued to to give God the best that he had, that he was going to continue to get the blessing of God. And as long as he got the blessing of God, Cain was going to be angry and want to destroy him. But Abel said, what? I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. He chose to please God rather than please himself. Abel wanted relationship with God more than he wanted anything else. It's time for us to start doing the hard thing. Folks, it's it's far easier to ignore your neighbor than enter into a friendship and invite him to church, isn't it? It's far easier to let your kids do what they want than it is to discipline them. It's far easier to laugh at lewd jokes than walk away because they're filthy. It's easier to blend in than declare your than to declare your relationship with God. 
But God's not calling you to do the easy thing. He's calling you to do the hard thing. And this is why the Apostle Paul says this. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him even in His death. Folks, this is New Testament Christianity. It means doing the hard thing even if it's going to cost you. And like Abel, cost him his life. Are you prepared and willing to do the hard thing? You wonder why God is not blessing you and not answering your prayers. And you know it's because God is not number one in your life. You know it's because God is not first in your life. It's far easier to sleep in on Sunday morning than it is to come to church, isn't it? It's far easier to take the Sunday off and, and go to the beach than to come to church. But I'm going to tell you this, folks. If you are not setting the example for your kids... And your kids are going to end up doing just what you do and maybe take it to a new level. Folks, I'm going to say to you today, don't be like Cain, who took the easy route. He didn't give the best to God. He was just going through the motions. How many of us go through the motions? We show up for church because we got to... Our wife makes us get up in the morning. <laughs> we get up in the morning, come to church because our parents are shaking us out of the bed. <laughs> How many are willing to do the hard thing? Because it's what pleases God. I want to, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Do the hard thing. And do it now. Do it now. For God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, read it with me. You know, you, you, you sit here and the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart and telling you what you need to do and what you need to do differently. And you're thinking, you know, that is, that's good. God, I, I agree with you. I'm going to get around to doing it one of these days. And God's saying, no. I'm speaking to you, and I'm moving by my Spirit in you right here and right now. Now is the day. Right now is the time to respond to God. Now is the time to respond to what the Spirit is doing in your heart. I love the fact that Abel did not put off to tomorrow what he knew he should do and could do today. I love the fact that Abel had an ongoing relationship and walk with God. Why is it that when it comes to God and comes to church, comes to worship and it comes to serve, how is it that, that God always seems to get pushed to the back burner or bumped to the side? How is it that that other things take first place in our lives. Has anybody noticed that or is it just me? Is it just me that has to really make a, a focused effort to maintain my relationship with God? How is it that in day-to-day -day living, God always gets relegated to last place? Has anybody experienced that? You know what I'm talking about. For some of you, it's been, it's been a week, it's been a month since you last did devotions. For some of you, the last time you prayed was when you prayed 
short little prayer over your meal yesterday. For some of you, your, your last prayer was, oh God, don't let me get a speeding ticket. I'm late for church. That's been the last prayer that, I, that you uttered. I'm not talking about just going through a religious ritual here, folks. I'm talking about a relationship with God. Where you have this and, and maintain this ongoing walk with Him. But you see, we are, we're procrastinators. How is it that you haven't talked to your neighbors yet? How is it that you haven't told the people at work that you're a Christian? How is it that that the people around you don't know that you're a believer? How is it that you haven't invited them to your small group yet? It's because we all suffer from a disease called procrastinitis. (laughs) Anybody suffer from that? This is what Dennis Waitley says about procrastination. He says, when you stop to think about it, there's no such thing as a future decision. You face only present decisions that will affect what will happen in the future. Procrastinators wait for just the right moment to decide. And if you wait for the perfect moment, you become a security seeker who's running in place, going through the motions, and getting deeper into a rut. You know what I'm talking about. He says this, if I wait for every objection to be overcome before I do something, I will attempt nothing. My personal motto is, stop stewing and start doing. I can't be depressed and active at the same time. I like changing the word motivation, says Dennis, just slightly to reflect a personal commitment to make, to take charge of today and make it the best day I can, I can. How many of us have been putting stuff off, putting the hard thing off? You're not willing to, to take the step that you need to, to take today to do that hard thing. It's always hard to do tough stuff, but they gotta be done. There's a little poem, the quandary of the unknown poet who wrote this. Listen to this and you can relate to it. I spent a fortune on a trampoline, a stationary bike, and a rowing machine, complete with gadgets to read my pulse and gadgets to prove my progress results and others to show the miles I've charted, but they left off the gadget to get me started. (laughs) Is that you? You've been meaning to get into a small group. You've been willing. You've been been willing to have people into your home. You've You've been wanting to invite your neighbor to church. You've been wanting to to change the way that you live your life. You've been wanting to go on that diet. How about do it now? Start today. Start today. From this moment. I got 25 after 11. Say that on this day. On July the... What's the date today? July the 6th at 11.25. I started my diet. Today at 11.25, I started my time of prayer and commitment to God. But today is a day. I start it now. The third thing I want to point out to you is you need to forget your reputation. In Galatians 1.10, Paul says this, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a servant of Christ. 
Can I just tell you that the Apostle Paul, he was going against the whole Jewish establishment and actually going against the church at that time because really the only people who were Christians were uh, Jewish people. They were the Jewish people were the first Christians. And suddenly Paul comes along and says, you know what? You don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. Thank God for that. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. And everybody's not coming down on Paul and telling him he's a heretic and he's he's not in the faith and that he's a, a rebel. A rebel. Oh, yeah. Where did we hear that term before? And Paul says, you know what? I am a rebel. You know what? I am breaking the rules. But you see, God's got a new rule. And my job is to please God and not please you. How many of us here today make our how many of us make our daily decisions based on what other people are going to think, and we don't even care what God thinks? And my friends, the whole the whole uh, definition or essence of what it means to be a believer is that you care about what God thinks about you and what you're doing. Can you imagine if Abel said, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not offering up these offerings to God anymore. Not well, my brother's getting angry at me." And by the way, where were Abel's parents while all this was happening? You know what I think? I think I think Abel's parents were jealous of Abel too. I think that Abel's parents were looking on at Abel and the and the wonderful relationship he had to God, and they only thought about but their only their own lack and how much they failed and how they let God down when they were in the garden. And now their son, their second son, no less, has got this this awesome relationship with God. And they're jealous of the son, too. And they're thinking, well, you know, maybe our eldest son, Cain, will, will get Abel in line and set him straight. Abel didn't care what his brother or what his parents thought. He decided he was going to serve God. And I'm going to say this. Listen, people are often insecure in the presence of excellence. People get jealous and even angry at people who do well and succeed and do and and excel whatever they do. I remember in school, it was the kids that got the high grades and got awards that were constantly the butt of jokes. That wasn't me. <laughs> I was never the butt of any jokes. <laughs> people will try to drag people down who do well. And if you're afraid today of, of ex- excelling and doing well because you're, you're afraid of what people are going to think, that my friend, you don't understand what it means to be a Christ follower. People always try to drag you down to their level. And when you refuse to bow, they'll malign you and spread rumors and try to destroy your reputation. In the early days of the Salvation Army, William Booth and his associates were so bitterly attacked in the press by religious leaders. It was the church that attacked the Salvation Army, if you can believe it. That whenever his son Bramwell showed both uh, his, his, uh, his father, uh, William Booth, a newspaper that attacked him, the general would reply like this, Bramwell, my dear son, 50 years from now it will matter very little how these people treated us. What will matter a great deal is how we dealt with the work of God. So my friends, I don't care what your people at work say about you because of your walk with God. And you shouldn't care either. It shouldn't matter to you what your neighbors think about your relationship with God and whether you go to church and whether you serve. What matters is what does God think of you and are you pleasing God? How many have heard of President Lincoln? His face is carved out of a 
carved into the, into the side of a mountain along with a few other presidents. But I want you to know that the President Lincoln is the greatest president that America has ever known. Do you want to know why? Because he's the one that led, led to the end of, of slavery and led the way for equality between the races in America. But guess what? He was ridiculed. They made jokes about him. He couldn't open a newspaper without some kind of an editorial that lambasted him, that laughed at him, that lampooned him, that made fun of him. He was hated by virtually everybody. I'm going to tell you something. If you want to be loved by everybody, then you are going to be the leader for mediocrity. But if you want to stand up and be counted useful for God and for the kingdom, then you're going to take some attacks. People are not going to like you. You're going to find your brothers and your sisters and your mother and your father even turning against you. I always tell you about my grandmother who thought that, that being a pastor, being a preacher wasn't a real job. She thought it was, she thought it was a disgrace. I would never tell any of her, any of her relatives that her third grandson was a, a preacher. She was proud to talk about Carrie, my older brother, the plumber, but the preacher, she wouldn't have any of it. And she would constantly say, Alan, when are you going to get a, a good job? When are you going to get a real job? When are you going to, you should become a, a shoe salesman, Alan. That would be, that'd be far, that'd be far more acceptable. Do you ever see the men at Eaton's that sell shoes? Nice suit, nice tie, and nice shoes. Alan, that's what you should do. I never pleased grandmother. But I hope I please God. I hope I please my Father in heaven. Yeah. Who are you pleasing? William Wilberforce. My favorite, one of my favorite heroes, my favorite politician, Kevin. <laughs> Kevin's my second favorite politician. William Wilberforce was considered a crank, a nutcase, a fool. He was considered an idiot. He was not taken seriously. Here's a man that railed for years against children being used in mines. And everybody said, what are you getting so upset about, William? They're orphans. They don't belong to anybody. They're not, they're not of any value to, value to anyone. And William Wilberforce saw the horrible conditions that these poor kids had to experience. And he rallied and railed and railed and railed until finally just to shut the man up. They passed a law that wouldn't allow these kids to go down into the coal mines in the United Kingdom. He wasn't happy with that victory because then he saw how slavery... Blacks were taken from their homeland and forced into slavery. And he wouldn't stand for it. And his whole life was devoted to making sure that slavery came to an end. He was ridiculed. He was hated. But he didn't care because he had, a, he had somebody far higher to please. And it wasn't the king or the queen of England, my friends. It was God. And this man, just before he died, heard the decision of the parliament. When it was voted on, the bill went through, ending slavery. And his life work was done, and he died. And some would say, what a waste of a, of a man who could have been a brilliant politician. 
But how many people remember any of William Wilberforce's peers? I don't know anybody that was in, in parliament with William Wilberforce. But William Wilberforce, I remember. Because he did great things for God. Our young people. Are you going to settle for status quo or are you going to do great things for God? Are you going to just do what everybody else is doing or are you going to stand up and do great things for God? Wouldn't it be thrilling if we had a William Wilberforce here, folks? Kevin, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had another politician, young politician here who had turned the tide in this country? Wouldn't it be thrilling if we had somebody here who'd become a doctor that would discover the cure for AIDS? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be something if we had some older people here who'd say, like Ernie and Mary, I'm not giving up, I've got work to do. But I'm going to tell you this. The minute you start doing something extraordinary for God is the day you are going to come under attack. And people are going to say, why are you trying so hard? Relax. Take it easy. You're too young to be so serious about serving God. And then you're going to get to an age where you're going to say, you're too busy with your kids to be so busy for God. And then you're going to get to an age where you're going to say, you should be retiring now. Let the younger generation do it. You're too old to serve God. And then you're going to come to the end of your life and say, well, there was no good time to serve God. And I'm telling you that now is the time to serve God. Now is the time to sign up for service. Now is the time to do what God has called you to do. Let the dream that God birthed in your heart come alive, my friends. Start doing what it is that God wants you to do. And my friends... It just takes a handful of people to turn this world upside down. A handful of people who say, God, here am I, use me. I will. I don't care what the cost, but I'm going to serve you with my whole heart, with my whole mind, with my whole soul. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Perhaps this morning you've lost your zeal. Do you remember when you used to be idealistic? Now you've become very realistic and very pragmatic. Somewhere along the line, when the going got tough, you decided to listen to the critics. You decided to listen to the naysayers. You decided to listen to the ones who were threatened by your enthusiasm and threatened by your great faith. You said you wanted to do great things for God, but, but then you, you backed off because people were laughing at you, calling you names. People said that, you were just a little too radical. They told you that your dreams were not realistic. They told you to act responsibly. They told you that you were being strange and unpractical. They told you to quit rocking the boat. Now you're stuck in the status quo. And the light in your heart has gone out. You used to be on fire. You used to be prepared to sacrifice all for God. You're willing to even leave your job to go and do the work God wanted you to do. Now you're pursuing your own dreams. And now God is just a pesky reminder of the higher things you were called to do. My friends, make no mistake about it. We are all called to do something great for the glory of God. Everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian is called to do something great for the glory of God. But the question is this. Are you prepared like Abel, to stand alone? Are you prepared like Abel to not give up?
Well, I want you to know today that God loves you and is still waiting for you to do what he has called you to do. And will you do it? Will you be young and reckless at heart?